we need financing for loss and damage. We need financing for adaptation. We have to double adaptation financing. And we need financing for mitigation. Welcome to today's Jolt. It's the 27th of November. I'm Sam Morgan, your host. Stay tuned later in the episode for an interview with Irish Climate Minister Eamon Ryan on his thoughts and wishes for the upcoming COP28 summit, which, if you needed any reminder, starts later this week. First, let's take a look at what has been happening in the world of energy and climate. Germany's €200 billion energy price support scheme will not be renewed at the end of the year. Finance Minister Christian Lindner confirmed that the Economic and Stabilisation Fund will expire at the end of December and that no more payments will be made from it. Last week, the European Commission told governments that temporary crisis measures should be wound up as soon as possible, plus a ruling by Germany's constitutional court on a separate climate fund had cast doubt on the legality of the government's debt accruing policies. Whether energy support will be funded under the regular budget in 2024 is still an open question. For more on the big budget bind Germany finds itself in, check out a recent episode of The Jolt dedicated to this very topic. Link in the show notes. Sticking with the Bundesrepublik and the German Greens have changed their opinion on carbon capture and storage. Now they're in favour of it. Delegates at a party conference decided that CCS should be supported in certain areas, particularly emissions-heavy industrial processes, like cement manufacturing. The Greens stopped short of saying they will support its use in making so-called blue hydrogen, though. This means that Greens head Robert Habeck's carbon management strategy can proceed, and further splits within the ruling coalition can be avoided, for now, anyway. India plans to triple the amount of underground coal mining it does in order to meet energy demand. About three quarters of India's power still comes from coal, and the vast majority of domestic supply comes from open cast mines. The government wants to go underground to meet demand and reduce imports. India is the second largest producer of coal in the world, but also the second largest importer of the polluting fuel. Officials also claim that underground mining is more environmentally friendly than open cast mines, a logic which has been dismissed by green groups who point out that the end product, coal, neutralises any environmental argument. The news will come as a blow to clean power advocates ahead of COP28. Speaking of COP28, summit hosts the United Arab Emirates plan to use the UN meeting to broker oil deals with up to 15 countries, leaked documents suggest. The BBC reports that the UAE team prepared talking points on fossil fuels and renewable energy for meetings with government officials. The UN says COP hosts are expected to act without bias or self-interest, while the UAE organising team says private meetings are private. Not a great start, I think you'll agree. Mozambique has unveiled its new energy transition plan, and it comes with an $80 billion price tag. The East African nation, where less than 50% of people have access to a regular power supply, wants to build an extra 2 gigawatts of hydropower and upgrade its grids by 2030. Mozambique gets most of its energy from biofuels and waste, with most of its electricity coming from hydro. The government says it will hold auctions to encourage private investors to help build wind and solar, while also rolling out schemes to help people fuel switch from wood and charcoal to cleaner heating and cooking options. Mozambique intends to present its full energy strategy at COP later this week. 
An Australian super fund that manages about 130 billion euros worth of assets has agreed to invest more than 11 billion euros into British energy and infrastructure projects by 2027. IFM investors said in a statement that significant deployment opportunities provided by the UK's energy transition outlook had driven the decisions. Spanish energy firm Iberdrola also announced more than 8 billion euros in investment in the UK sector. It has been quite the start to the Global Investment Summit, which the UK is currently hosting. Energy major BP has opened a new e-truck charging corridor along one of Northern Europe's busiest road freight routes. Six ultra-fast chargers have been installed at key locations along the 600-kilometre-long Rhine-Alpine route, which helps connect ports in Belgium and the Netherlands with the Mediterranean hub in Genoa. Two more chargers will be installed in the coming months. Each one of them can charge 20 e-trucks per day, and a range of 200 kilometres can be achieved within 45 minutes. BP's electric vehicles branch says the sites have access to hot food, restrooms, showers and well-lit parking all of which are key asks from trucker unions. Forecasts say more than 250,000 battery-powered medium and heavy-duty vehicles will be on Europe's roads by 2030. Romania expects to get EU approval for its new Contracts for Different scheme that the government has designed for renewable energy projects. The first auctions are expected in early 2024, if the European Commission gives the go-ahead, as expected. CFDs have been a crucial part of the EU's electricity markets reform, after Brussels indicated that the financial instruments were the safest and most feasible way to manage high energy prices and preserve energy project investments. And an aviation startup that aims to get regulator approval for a hydrogen-powered electric plane by 2025 has been given a funding boost. Zero Avia, an Anglo-American entry into the nascent sector, has secured more than 110 million euros from investors, which include Airbus, the UK Infrastructure Bank, and Saudi Arabia's investment fund. At first, Zero Avia hopes to install its engine technology on existing planes to improve its regulatory approval chances. In 2025, it wants to operate a 19-seater aircraft with range of nearly 500 kilometers. In 2027, the plan is to upgrade to an 80-seater with more than 1,000 kilometers of range. Tests using small propeller planes have already been successfully undertaken, and Zero Avia is expected to announce soon which airlines it will partner with in the next stage of its operation. That's all of your news updates for today. Now let's move on to a closer look at the story of the moment. COP28 is nearly upon us. My email inbox is already shaking with fear at the prospect of what is about to hit it. Ahead of the summit, my foresight colleague, Kira Taylor, managed to sit down for an interview with Ireland's Minister for Environment, Climate and Communications, Eamon Ryan. The COP28 International Climate Conference will be going on Thursday, with politicians, scientists, businesses, civil society and more, all making the trip to Dubai to take part. Ahead of this, I spoke to Irish Climate Minister Eamon Ryan about his priorities. He said that everyone should be compelled to be more ambitious by the extreme weather events seen in 2023, and the fact that the assessment of the world's progress in tackling the climate crisis, known as the global stocktake, is likely to make a grim reading. 
One of his key focuses is finance. He wants Europe to ensure investment in developing countries is scaled up dramatically. Here's the rest of our conversation. You've said a radical reform of the global financial system is required to reach the level of climate finance that's needed. What does that reform look like? I'm very influenced by what the research the International Energy Agency is doing. I'm I'm the privilege of co-chairing the ministerial meeting, which we'll have in February, the 50th anniversary of the International Energy Agency. And I think a lot of their analysis is is credible and it's, it's very much being used to support the COP process, so it would have very much influenced the G7 and G20 conclusions earlier this year, which were some of those ideas about tripling renewables, doubling efficiency came out of. And similarly, I think it's very close to the kind of ideas in the Bridgetown Initiative and in the summit that President Macron organised this summer around climate finance justice. Um, but also, if you look at their analysis, the net, the net zero pathway 2050 it's 4.5 trillion investment in clean energy early next decade per annum. And um, and I think that's the scale. Now, it's happening. We're up to about 1.7, 1.8 trillion a year this year, which is a significant jump. It's the first time in history that clean energy has overtaken fossil fuel. Um, but it needs to triple and, and the financing needs to triple. And it needs, we need financing for loss and damage. We need financing for adaptation. We have to double adaptation financing. And we need financing for mitigation. So I think one of the things, I mean, last year there was some progress on areas like loss and damage and so on, but not sufficient progress on on the other areas. But one of the ideas that came out of it was this idea of a mosaic of financing solutions. And, And I think... Um, and I think governments have to step up, obviously. Um, we, particularly in the developed world, have to play, play our part and be willing to provide exchequer funding. Um, but that on its own is not going to do it. And other countries that might be historically described in, in the, under the 1992 convention as outside the funding requirement do need to come in. Uh, the likes of the wealthy oil-producing states, the likes of China. But but that on its own is not going to be enough. I, I, this, what the European Union is pushing is that we should look at levies in aviation, in maritime. Um, obviously, the reform of the multilateral development banks, IMF, and the regional development banks as well. And beyond that, I think, um, to start looking at ideas around carbon taxation, um, to look at how we would redirect investment that's going into the fossil fuel industries continuing to go and reinvested in fossils to try and create the conditions where that could be redirected into clean. And the need for that, the IEA published some analysis which showed out of the supernormal profits the fossil fuel industries are making, only 1% is going into clean energy investment. That's not sustainable. You know, they can't just keep expanding and profiteering on the back of a kind of, of this climate crisis. And that requires us creating the conditions where a real switch of the entire financial flow architecture, and particularly around energy, can happen. Now, it won't happen all in Dubai. It'll take two years. I think the French and Kenyan governments come out recently with a kind of a proposal that we would kind of set ourselves on the course over the next two years of delivering that. And I agree with that. I think that's what we need to get. And we need to get firm decisions in Dubai 
to set us in that direction. And do you think there's an appetite for that radical reform, both from countries who are involved in it and also from the companies in the fossil fuel industry? Um, first, I think the politics is changing. I think what happened in the African Climate Summit in Nairobi this summer was significant, where I think the Kenyan government, government did a particularly good job in reframing how we see development and climate going together agreeing that we need global financing solutions to global problems. It won't just work. This is a blame gaming kind of point in the shame. Looking back in history, we need to look forward in terms of how could we integrate development and climate. So so I think the politics is changing. And I think I, um, I go back last year and one of the negotiation points I remember most was when Antonio Guterres came into the European negotiation room. We were in a side meeting preparing for later negotiations. And he was very strong and I think very correct in saying we need to break down this north-south divide, east-west divide, and we need to work in consensus to put development and climate together, with climate justice at the centre. Secondly, I think, to answer your question, do I think it's possible? Again, I'm going back to the Nairobi summit this summer, which I thought was very significant, as I said. It was very interesting there. The United Arab Emirates had recommended, had said, made a proposal that they would provide some 4.5 billion euros financing for clean energy in Africa. Very welcome. I was at a meeting subsequently where a number of the African climate energy ministers and, and energy ministers were, were meeting with the UAE and the International Energy Agency. It was organized by the IEA. And you really got an understanding there what what not a lot of people have been talking about, what me mostly, I suppose more than anyone else, has highlighted that the conditions to invest in clean energy, in particularly developing emerging countries, are not there. That you've got so many risk factors around currency risk, around regulatory risk, around skills shortage, grid requirements, and so on. And my sense, one of the things that I'll be pushing as part of the European delegation, is that we use both public and philanthropy and other and MDB financing to help de-risk some of those sort of investments and to to encourage private investment at the same time. And in a sense, private investment, which first and foremost has to be absolutely transparent in the accounting and reporting rules so that there's clear, that there's a greater confidence in terms of where's the money coming from, where's it going, how's it spent, but also de-risking the investment by taking some of the currency risk out and investing in all those other support systems. This is already happening with the likes of the JetP kind of um, uh, process, but I think it needs to be much more project-specific and scaled up very significantly. And my sense, if you did that, take that $4.5 billion, let's say, investment potential coming from a fossil fuel company, a country in this case, um, UAE, put that together with public financing to help de-risk it, that starts to make the business case viable. And and it has to change. Like the reality is, as I said, the fossil fuel industry are only investing 1% in clean energy. And of that 1%, probably only 1% or 2% is going to the most vulnerable countries. And, and that has to change. And the benefits of it come in a whole variety of ways. Well, firstly... If we start investing, let's say in Africa, and it's not just about the fossil fuel industries, I think it's the mining sector as well, the resource uh, processing the and the manufacturing, and that's what Kenya and Senegal and other countries and Nigeria and others are looking at. Well, then you get diversity of supply. Not all the solar panels are coming from China. Not that 
you know, that Chinese technology is very welcome and, and their ramping up of solar, I think, is a huge benefit to the world. But by having manufacturing and development and developing of resources in the more developing countries, then you get more diverse supply, which helps us avoid a trade war on climate, which is the last thing we need. And secondly, it helps reduce conflict. It helps reduce forced migration. It it, it it invests in the areas that are most affected by climate. It's in the likes of the Horn of Africa, North Africa, West Africa, that we're seeing the highest impacts and, and all the consequences come with it. By investing in loss and damage in those areas, but also in adaptation and also in this area of mitigation, I think actually that's a win-win. I mean, Europe's security is enhanced when Africa's security is guaranteed. And the energy future on a renewable track is different to a hydrocarbon one because it's not we're not competing. You know, the the solar power comes for free. What did Bill McKibben put it really well? He said we need to switch from taking our energy source from hell and get it from heaven. And we won't fight over that. Yeah. That's a peace project and, and that's what the world needs at this moment. And finally, looking ahead to COP28, do you have any big concerns and would you consider any particular outcome a failure? I think if we don't get strong decisions in response to the stock take, particularly putting us in the path towards redirecting the entire financial flow system as in uh, as is set out as an ambition in the Paris Climate Agreement, then it won't be a success. And I am hopeful going into it because the atmosphere in Abu Dhabi at the pre-COP negotiations three weeks ago was better than I think people expected. We were very fearful that what was going on in Gaza would just poison the ability to have any sort of discourse. But actually, what's also happening in the world, these incredible climate impacts, I think is starting to see the negotiators at least, and governments recognise we're in trouble here unless we start to act fast. And I'm so I hope we can get a strong text with real decisions which steer us in this towards the scale of change particularly financial flows that we need excellent well thank you for your time thank you great stuff there from kira stay tuned to the jolt for much more from her in the coming weeks and months many thanks for joining us today i'll be back on wednesday with another episode of the jolt Before I sign off, just a brief roundup of what we've got for you at Foresight Climate and Energy. The digital copy of our latest magazine is ready and waiting for you to dive into, as well as the latest episode of What Matters. The Jolt is free to air, so please do show us some love and share the episodes if you enjoy listening. Thanks to everyone at Foresight for helping make The Jolt possible, and shout out to Mute Island for providing the theme music. Until next time, thanks for being a part of The Jolt.